We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, what's the difference between abolitionists and pro-lifers when it comes to fighting abortion? And is one right and the other wrong? Or should we be working together for the same cause and the same good? I'm Dr. Everett Piper and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Today's topic is abortion and the pro-life versus abolitionist debate. Not the pro-life and abortion debate, but the pro-life versus the abolitionists or the abolitionists versus the pro-lifers. If you're not aware of this tension that exists within the anti-abortion movement, you need to listen to today's show. And I'm going to argue that we're fighting against one another, we're maligning one another, we're dividing what should be united. We're dividing in what should be a united front against an evil, against the killing of babies. And we're calling each other names rather than fighting the real enemy, and that's those who believe it's right and moral and good to kill babies just because of their age and their location. So today, Pro-lifers versus abolitionists. And my message will be, stop calling each other names. Recognize we're both fighting for the same cause, and we're both seeking to save the lives of human beings. Let's take an early break, and when I get back, I'm going to share with you a discussion, a debate I've recently had with people within my own church circles about this very issue. Some claiming that the real enemy here is the pro-lifers, who embrace incrementalism as a viable strategy for saving human lives. These incrementalists versus those all-or-nothing abolitionists. That's today's debate. That's today's topic. Which is the moral high ground here? Incrementalism or -or all-or-nothing-ism? That's the question. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break. I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle 
And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance, and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So the question is a question of strategy, the question of the game plan. How do we win? How do we move the ball down the field toward an ultimate goal, toward the touchdown? That's really the question here. It's frankly quite similar to the question I recently dealt with on a show three or four Three or four episodes back, I can't remember, I think I dealt with it last week, where someone asked me how I felt about the gang of 20, the conservatives in the Republican caucus in the House, who stood against Kevin McCarthy through, how many votes was it, 15 plus, if I remember correctly? They stood against him and wouldn't vote for him to be Speaker of the House. Why? I would argue it was because of incrementalism. They wanted to gain a few yards on the field. They wanted to at least get a first down. They knew they weren't going to get a touchdown. These people had a goal. These representatives wanted to gain some conservative yards, so they held their ground. And what happened? I would argue they were victorious. Yes, it was frustrating. Yes, for those of us who are Republican and conservative, we didn't like to watch the infighting. And we turned our focus toward that rather than the obvious movement of the ball down the field toward a more conservative house and a conservative speaker, because as the result, he had to give concessions. At the end of the day, when he was ultimately elected as Speaker of the House, he had made concessions to the conservative caucus that he would not have made otherwise. And I would argue that's the way our government is supposed to work. It's this tension between competing parties that our founding fathers set up that actually results in healthy government, restrained government, government that's less autocratic and authoritarian over the lives of the American people. We have more freedom rather than less when government is restrained and constrained through these various different debates and tensions. So incrementalism, I would argue, was a good thing in government. You don't want the government throwing touchdowns every time. Because if you're on the losing team and your opponents are throwing touchdowns every time they get the ball, you're going to be severely oppressed and crushed as a result of that. You would rather have your opponent have to fight to move the ball one inch or two inches up the field. And when you have the ball, you're going to suffer the same resistance. But if you have a better strategy and you recognize the value of gaining three yards here and four yards there, ultimately toward a first down so that you can continue to move the ball down the field, then I would argue that's a good thing. I bring the same philosophy to the table today with regard to the goal of saving more human lives rather than less. And that's really the issue here. Is it good to save more lives rather than less? Is that a good thing? If you have the opportunity to save 10 lives rather than zero, shouldn't you do that? If you know that 100 people are going to die on the battlefield, if you know, for example, that you're a doctor in a MASH unit, remember the old TV series MASH? If you know 
that you have a hundred people that have just been brought in off the battlefield, who have suffered severe injury, and you know that if you do nothing, all 100 of them will die. But you also know that you cannot save all of them. What do the doctors in the mass unit do? They perform what is called triage. They make decisions as to who they think they can save. And if they can save only 10 out of the 100, what do they do? They save the 10 because they know to do otherwise would be, would be to consign those 10 to death. And I would argue they would be complicit in the death of the 10 that they could have saved had they not engaged in the triage decisions in the first place. In other words, they moved the ball. There were 100 yards to be gained. They knew they could only gain 10, so they gained the 10 and regrouped to fight another day. It's not a perfect world. This is what you have to do in warfare. And who among us would condemn those doctors or call those doctors pro-death? We know that those doctors have given a pledge to defend life and to save lives, but yet we would turn around and condemn them for doing so and call them somehow pro-death and accuse them of being complicit in the murder, the execution of these soldiers? No, we wouldn't do that. I would assume that if you're listening to me right now, you would think that, that would be a crazy conclusion to draw with regard to these mass unit doctors. Well, I want you to think about that analogy, that comparison, as we discuss the issue of pro-life versus abolitionists right now. This week I was involved in a debate with some members in my church, good people, good people that are on the same side in terms of the fight to save babies. You'll notice on this show that I often refuse to call these pre-born children pre-born because I think that, I think that uh, plays into the hands of those who are trying to define these human beings as being lesser than all of the rest of us. Somehow because of their location and their age, they're less than fully human when we start calling them fetuses or pre-born or whatnot. They're babies. They're babies. A mother is carrying her baby. If she suffers a miscarriage, she lost her baby. And likewise, if we decide to kill it because of convenience, you're killing a baby. And I don't qualify it as preborn. I call I, I call it what it is, a human being, a young person, a baby. So I am fully on board, as you know, with the pro-life position. And let me just set out my credentials here. I'll, I'll, I'll stack them up against everybody's. I've marched in Washington, D.C., in the March for Life, with hundreds of thousands of people. I've stood on the Supreme Court steps and spoken in defense of the Little Sisters of the Poor and all of those, my university included, who were standing against the Obama administration's forced inclusion in our health care package of abortifacient drugs, drugs that kill babies, the youngest and most vulnerable among us. I've stood with Catholics and Evangelicals alike and Orthodox in defending the dignity of human life. I have sat in the Supreme Court as my institution, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, took the risk of suing the Obama administration for its intrusion into our pro-life policies. We defended ourselves and said, no, we will not submit. We will not include drugs that kill human beings or any other services within our healthcare packages that terminate the life of a living, breathing person. We won't do that. 
So I've been there. I actually was one of the, I was the only university president in the nation. I don't know if it's changed since I retired or not, but Oklahoma Wesleyan was the only university in the entire nation that bought an ultrasound mobile clinic, an equipped Mercedes van, 15-passenger van that was changed into a mobile ultrasound clinic that we would take around the state and park it across the street from a Planned Parenthood clinic or some other abortion clinic or park it across the street from a major university, Oklahoma State University, the University of Oklahoma, the University of Tulsa, and save human lives because over 90% of the women that would go into that ultrasound clinic would choose not to abort their child. So I'll stack my pro-life credentials up with anybody. I've written about this. I've spoken about this. So if I'm challenged as somehow being a problem rather than a solution when it comes to the fight for human life, I take, I take umbrage with that. Okay, so within that context, recently I was having a discussion with some members of my church and other conservative church churches here in my area. People that I align with, people that I have locked arms with in the fight against stuff like the transgender movement in our public parks. And I suggested that what we need to do is work with our local representatives who share our passion for defending human life that we don't want to make those people our enemies, those representatives in our House and Senate here in Oklahoma. We want to continue to treat them as friends rather than foes. Well, I was challenged because one senator in particular has not been pure enough on the abolitionist position, and that senator was criticized in my debate. And I said, look, look, we need to. And I said, I encourage you, I strongly encourage all of you to treat our senator and our representative as friend and not foe. It doesn't, it, it doesn't serve our cause well to do otherwise. Keep them on our team. Incremental wins are important. Move the ball. Celebrate a first down when you can get it. Don't go for a touchdown every time, I said. Well, I received some criticism, some pushback from my friends. And again, I don't want to alienate my friends here, but I do want to challenge you if you lean in favor of their argument versus mine here. And I want you to at least consider what I'm saying right now. So here's one response that one person gave me as a rebuttal. He said, I'm not in favor of the incremental approach when it comes to murdering unborn persons. He went on to say, call evil what it is. Demand equal justice under the law. Modern science agrees that personhood begins at conception. And as such, that person should be, should be afforded the same protections as every other person. Equal protection requires equal consequences. All right. Now, there's an assumption here, I think, in his rebuttal that I would disagree with what he just said, that we should call evil what it is and demand equal justice under the law, and that modern science agrees that personhood begins at conception. I agree with all of that. I don't dispute that. And... Just because I believe in incremental gains doesn't mean that I'm dumbing down the definition of personhood and ignoring science or suggesting that the law should not protect every person. Now, my detractor went further, and he drew an analogy, a comparison between the abolition of slavery and the abolition of abortion. He said this, just as with the abolition of slavery, we shouldn't advocate for anything less than the total abolition of abortion. Scripture demands it. Now, I think that's an interesting comparison, and I agree. I agree that 
we worked hard, we fought hard, we, we sacrificed hundreds of thousands of lives in the Civil War for the total abolition of slavery here in the United States, but my detractor is ignoring history here. He doesn't recognize, or at least he's forgotten, that William Wilberforce in Great Britain fought for over 20 years on the floor of the British Parliament for the abolition of the slave trade. Did you hear what I just said? The slave trade. Wilberforce did not argue for 20 years plus on the floor of Parliament for the total abolition of slavery. He realized the value of incremental gain. He knew he had to bite off what he could chew. He knew that if he was going to be successful in getting rid of the evil of slavery in the United Kingdom, that he had to start with the slave trade. And if he could break the back of the slave trade, that the next shoe to fall would be the abolition of slavery in its totality. So are we going to accuse William Wilberforce of being evil rather than praise him for being good? I surely hope not. William Wilberforce almost single-handedly brought down the evil of the slave trade in the free world. But he was an incrementalist. And my detractor also ignores the history of the United States. It is a proven fact that uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, for example, were incrementalists when it came to the issue of slavery. They knew that if they took an all-or-nothing stand on that particular issue, that the United States never would have been united, and America never would have been born, and freedom would have been lost. They were playing football. They were trying to move the ball down the field one yard at a time, get a first down, recover, and then go for the touchdown. Were there mistakes made along the way? Absolutely. It's a broken world. Was some of their strategy flawed? Sure. I I would be the first to admit that. Has our country suffered because of flawed strategy? Yes. But to condemn incrementalism when it moves the ball toward a percentage of moral gain rather than a constant moral loss, uh, it's, it's foolhardy in my view to somehow castigate incrementalists as being evil rather than embrace them in a co-belligerent way as being part of your same team. Now, in my debate with these guys, I said this. I said, suffice it to say, I am in favor of saving more lives rather than less. And I said this, history is clear. An all-or-nothing approach almost always results in nothing. I want to say that again. Hear me on this. An all-or-nothing approach almost always bears nothing rather than all. Every baby saved incrementally is a life we should be celebrating. Do you hear me on that? Every baby we save incrementally is a life we should be celebrating. And to sacrifice that baby, even one baby, even one, on the altar of political idealism is wrong in my view. And this is why I would argue the abolitionist's approach is something that is going to lose rather than win this particular battle. And yes, yes, let me just say this. The same philosophy did apply to the abolition of slavery in the United States. As I've said, William Wilberforce was not an all-or-nothing person, and thus he saw the end of the British slave trade. And Washington and Jefferson and Adams were not an all-or-nothing group of people. 
They had to be incrementalists. They knew that all or nothing would result in no United States because the states wouldn't unite if they demanded all or nothing on that issue. Is that an affirmation of slavery? Absolutely not. Was it an acknowledgement if they were going to save some from the heavy hand of the slave traders that they had to figure out a way to move the ball down the field incrementally? That is a historic fact. I mean, the fact that Washington and Jefferson and Adams may have had slaves is not necessarily an acknowledgement that they agreed with the oppression of black people. At that time, it may have been the only way in their minds. It's, it's really great for us to have hindsight and 2020 hindsight and say, well, you were wrong. But at that time, was it a fact that Washington and Jefferson and Adams and whatnot were actually treating these people with dignity and respect and protecting them from the heavy hand of others? Was that an incremental strategy on their part to try to figure out a way to finally win this battle against such an evil? All right. So when I'm charged with somehow being part of the problem rather than part of the solution, And when an abolitionist confronts me and says, well, you're guilty of sin, Uh, you're you're essentially complicit in murder by being an incrementalist, I'm saying this. This is my clear response, and I want you to hear me on this. Nope, that's not true. Because if 100 babies are going to die, and we know it, it's a fact, 100 are going to die, and if we can save only 10 of them, then we should save the 10 every day. If that's the wager we have, we should save the 10 every day. To do anything else is to be complicit. It's to be complicit in the death of the 10. Again, I'm going to use the analogy of triage in war. In war, triage is necessary. And this is a war for the lives of babies. And those who don't do triage will lose more lives rather than less. Are you going to stand smugly on the sidelines while the 10 die? because you didn't compromise yourself with incrementalism? Uh, And you watch these 10 babies die that could have been saved. Oh, but you're somehow consigning the other 90 to death. All of them were going to die. All 100 people were going to die. All 100 soldiers on the battlefield would have died had it not been for the triage decisions of the doctors in the MASH unit. They saved some of them. Praise those doctors. Thank them for their heroic efforts to defend the lives of those who had been butchered by war. And likewise, thank the incrementalists who have fought in the streets, at the abortionist clinics, have fought in the courts. Thank them for defending the lives of the youngest among us. Don't criticize them as being murderers. Again, again, letting 10 out of 100 babies die on the altar of an all-or-nothing strategy is missing the forest for the trees. It's akin to cutting down the entire forest rather than working to save whatever percentage of the trees you can. Are you just going to stand back and let the entire Amazon jungle be destroyed with not one tree left? Or if you can save a portion of the Amazon jungle, knowing you can't save all of it, would you at least do what you can to to save some of the forest? Again, all-or-nothing strategies often result in nothing. So, I had this rebuttal from a person in this debate. 
what of the 90 of the children who were lost for the sake of the 10? Is the all-or-nothing approach something that God demands time and time again in Scripture? We are to give no quarter to sin. Great. Don't, I don't disagree. We are to give no quarter to sin. Saving the lives of the 10 is not giving quarter to those who are murdering the other 90. So my basic rhetorical question back to you, if you resonate with my detractor's point here, when he says, what of the 90 who were lost for the sake of the 10, is to say this, what about the 10 you just consigned to death because of your disregard for incremental gain? Do you get my point here? The, it's clear. It is as clear as the nose on your face that clinics have been shut down in Oklahoma because of incrementalists. There are, almost, there are almost no abortion clinics left in Oklahoma. Are we going to celebrate that, or are we going to bemoan that because the efforts that led to those closures were essentially efforts led by incrementalists rather than abolitionists? So I guess in summary, as we get ready to wrap up the show, is this. We need to lock arms together in this fight. If you can throw a touchdown, great. But if you don't have the quarterback right now to throw that touchdown, if you don't have the political clout, if you don't have the people necessary on your team to block and give the quarterback time to throw that touchdown, then what should you be doing? You should be working to run the ball up the middle and gain a few yards rather than being set back on your heels every time and losing. Incremental gain is something the left understands. They do it very well. They gain two yards, and they'll lose one. And then they'll go back to the line of scrimmage again, and they'll gain another two and lose one. They'll gain another two or three and lose one or two. What's happening? The left is moving the ball down the field while the conservatives stand there in their idealism, sacrificing hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of lives on the altar of all or nothing. On the altar of thinking that if you don't throw the ball for a touchdown every time, then you're an immoral person complicit in murder. That's insulting. That's condescending. It's narrow-minded, and it results in the deaths of children. Lots of them. The gradualism the incrementalism, if you will, and I'm using those terms synonymously right now. Gradual gain, incremental gain, is what William Wilberforce did to change the world and to abolish the slave trade, which then incrementally led to the abolition of slavery in totality. This pragmatic approach, this gradualism, this incrementalism, of traditional pro-lifers has likewise led to the end of thousands of abortion clinics and the saving of tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of human lives. Are some children still being butchered at the hands of abortionists? Absolutely. Should we condemn it at every turn? Yes. But if you can save 10 out of the 100, shouldn't you do so? Or are you going to smugly stand on the sidelines and say, nope, 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 I'm not going to lower myself to that particular strategy of incremental gain. I'll let those 10 die for the sake of my higher ideal of complete and total abolition. And in the meantime, in the meantime, 10 will die today, 
another tomorrow, and over the course of the years, you've lost thousands of babies, the youngest and the most innocent among us. I would argue, if that all-or-nothing approach causes you to stand on the sidelines and condemn anybody else who's out there saving one baby a day, two babies a day, three babies a day, figuring out strategies that would slow down the butchery of our children by this degradation of the human being that takes place in the abortion clinic. If, if you're going to condemn your brothers and sisters who are, who are as pro-life as you, and in some cases have done a lot more than you have, for the pro-life cause. Again, I'll put my credentials up against anybody right now. I've spoken against this. I've written against this. I've sued against this. I put my money where my mouth is at the university by raising the funds to go buy a mobile ultrasound clinic so that mothers could see the moving human being that they carry in their body and recognize that to terminate that, abort that moving human being is to kill to murder their own baby. I'll stack those credentials up against any of you, any person who's claiming the moral high ground that you didn't do any of that because you believed in total abolition rather than those incremental gains. Really? Really? Is that where you are? Well, tell that to the ten babies that just died on your altar of all or nothing. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.